Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Katie Fisher. This year marks the 200th anniversary of Jane Austen's celebrated novel, Pride and Prejudice. Today, I'm talking with Susan Greenfield, an English professor at Fordham University, about Austen's body of work and her importance among readers everywhere. Can you tell me a little bit about your background as an English professor, and how did your passion for Jane Austen begin? Well, my passion for Jane Austen began long before I was an English professor. It began when I first read Pride and Prejudice, and I was in high school, and I fell in love with the book. And I, when I went to graduate school, I wanted to find a way to write about Jane Austen. Um, that was basically my goal. And so I started off being uh, interested in 19th century literature because Jane Austen's books are published in... Um, the early 1800s. Um, uh, Sense and Sensibility is 1811, and Persuasion, her last novel, is 1817. They're published within a very short span of time, and then she dies. Um, so I thought maybe I would study 19th century literature, but um, what ended up happening was I learned more uh, about 18th century and about 18th century novelists. And specifically, I learned that women writers in the 18th century were seen in many ways as being the masters of the novel genre. And I realized that Jane Austen really descended, at least in part, from earlier women novelists in the 18th century. So I ended up writing a dissertation about 18th century women novelists that ended with a chapter on Jane Austen. How many novels has she written or are published? She published six major novels. She was working on uh, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and Northanger Abbey in the 1790s. The first one she completed and tried to get published was Northanger Abbey. A publisher actually bought the novel and then never issued it in her lifetime. In her lifetime, uh, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, and Emma were published. And then after she died, Northanger Abbey, the first novel, and Persuasion, the last, were actually published together. Mm -hmm. She also wrote uh, a novella called Lady Susan. She wrote a ton of stuff when she was a kid um, or when she was a young woman. All of that has since been published. It's called The Juvenalia. And she has two uh, novels that she started but didn't complete, one called The Watsons and one called Sanditon. But the novels she's famous for, uh, the novels people talk about when they talk about Jane Austen, are the six novels. Uh, Northanger Abbey, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, and Persuasion. How old was she when she died? She was 41. So that's pretty young. Let's, let's put it this way. It is very young. It is tragically young. Do you think she would have had, like, written more Absolutely. books? Absolutely. Do you think her career ended shortly because of her early death? Well, I guess one of the things that's remarkable is that even though she was only able to publish six novels in her lifetime, it is a substantial body of work by any standard. I'm still hoping to publish one before I die. But surely she would have 
continued to write and publish more. And um, just just to give you an example of, of how young she was and how tragic it was, Walter Scott, uh, well-known in his time, a historical novelist, um, wrote this after she died. What a pity such a gifted creature died so early. So there's every reason, right, to imagine that she would have gone on to write more. Um, fortunately, she left us a substantial enough body of work that we can continue talking and writing about her ad nauseum. When did she begin to write? You said she was a teenager? She was writing from the time she was young. I mean, I think she was writing, I actually don't know the exact age, but I think from about the time she was 12, she was writing. And uh, she started working in earnest on the books that became her novels in the mid to late 1790s. But then there was a really long period of time before they were published. So, for instance, Pride and Prejudice began in... I think it's 1795. It had a different name, First Impressions, and um, it was not actually published until 1813. So there's a long period of time between when she starts those early novels, Northern Garabi, Sense and Sensibility, and Pride and Prejudice, and when they're published. And it's not really clear how much writing she did during that period of time. And then after those were published, she published the three other novels very quickly. The ones published in her lifetime were uh, Mansfield Park and Emma, in addition to the ones I've already mentioned, and Persuasion, as I said earlier, was published after she died with Northern Garabi. So that's kind of sad <laughs> that she didn't get to see it's, it, you know, the fame and fortune that she absolutely. has Absolutely. I mean, she had no idea. None. Put it this way. When Pride and Prejudice was first issued, a thousand copies sold. And then there was another issue of about 750 and a final issue probably under $1,000. It's not precise. In her entire life, the numbers of her books that were sold while she was alive probably totaled about 11,000 or so. Think of how many hits on a YouTube video. This was respectable, but a very small number of books sold. Um, she was very well respected from the start by writers and intellectuals, but she was not well known. She was by no means famous. When did she become famous and popular? When did that begin? Well, as I said, she was always uh, well respected. From the start, she was well respected by writers like um, Sir Walter Scott. And then what happens is in around 1869, 1870, her nephew publishes a biography about her, and he paints her as this kind of perfect, proper woman um, who took her domestic duties very uh, seriously and nevertheless issued these tremendous novels. And what happened is that after he wrote that biography, she became sensationally famous. But she died in 1817, and that happened in, around 1870. So there was a big lag before it happened. So what qualities or characteristics about her writing separates her from other authors? You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this a lot because when Pride and Prejudice uh, had its 200th birthday, 
People kept asking and kept trying to explain why Pride and Prejudice is so famous, why it's so popular, why everybody loves it so much. And I read article after article trying to explain it. And when I was done reading all the articles, I decided, you know, we don't really know. I mean, people are just offering possibilities. So, you know, one answer I want to give you is who knows why anybody becomes extraordinarily famous. But for Austin, I think we can say a few things for sure. One is that she's brilliant. <laughs> and the other is that she's hilarious. She's really funny. Um, How so? Well, there, there's much that's funny. I mean, sometimes she is funny because her characters are absurd. So, for instance, in a novel like um, Pride and Prejudice, there are some comic characters. Uh, she's funny about various characters who don't know themselves um, and who say things that expose their own lack of self-consciousness, their own greed, um, their own insecurities. So she creates funny characters and she makes fun of characters. And a lot of the humor comes from characters who she's lambasting. I mean, one might almost say it's not nice. But by the time you read about it, it's fine because the characters are so crazy you feel like they deserve it. Or the characters are so idiotic you feel like they deserve to be made fun of, right? And sometimes characters in the novels will make fun of other characters. But she also creates these contexts that are funny uh, because people are funny. She's a very keen observer of human behavior. And she's a very keen observer of human hypocrisy and the way people hide from others and from themselves what it is they truly think and want. And by showing them thinking and wanting those things without their admitting it or sometimes knowing it, she creates incredibly funny scenes. That's probably what resonates so well then with her readers and why they're so enraptured in her writing. Well, it, it's great because you can read it and you can laugh and yet you feel like you're reading something profound. You, If you pay the slightest bit of attention, you realize that you're being shown something about how people think and how they repress their thoughts and um, in many ways how, how things are cruel. I mean, some of her best jokes are jokes about human cruelty. So there's there's an incident in Pride and Prejudice. Let me see if I can explain this economically. The problem in Pride and Prejudice is that the daughters can't inherit their father's property. And Elizabeth Bennet's best friend ends up marrying Mr. Collins, the idiot, who's going to inherit the property. And when her best friend is named Charlotte, and when Charlotte's mother finds out that her daughter is marrying the man who's going to inherit Mr. Bennett's property when Mr. Bennett dies. She starts calculating how many years longer he is likely to live. Now, it's funny. You're, you're laughing right not. here. But it's not. Right. <laughs> it's funny, but it's not, right? It's the part of it, it's funny because the tone is so matter-of-fact. Like, of course she wants to know how many years longer he's likely to live. But really, it's quite cruel because she's looking forward to his death so that her daughter can get to live in the house. Um, and what makes Austen so funny is that she 
both conveys that kind of greed and uh, cruelty that people have towards each other when they're looking out for their own self-interests. But she conveys it in a way that shows that the people themselves are unaware of how they're behaving and thinking. And they actually fancy themselves good people. And it's the disjunctures, um, the ways in which things don't fit. It's the dishonesty that becomes funny. I'm Katie Fisher on 90.7 WFUV, speaking with Professor Susan Greenfield about Jane Austen. Stay with us. More Fordham Conversations is ahead. Do you think there have been other authors who've achieved this fame that Austen has or have like written like her? Well, there are tons of people now who try to write tr- like her. I mean, everybody in the world tries to write like her or at least to steal her plot. Are they even successful, though? Of course, there are other authors who are as funny and smart as Jane Austen. But in terms of the genre she chooses, romantic comedy, um, how many people write brilliant, witty, love stories that are far more than love stories, that are really about the human condition without banging you upside the head and saying, look, I'm profound, I'm profound, right? Austin doesn't announce that. Who knows if she even was aware of quite how profound her novels were. It's a major accomplishment. Now to talk more about Pride and Prejudice and the Bicentennial this year, how are people celebrating it? You know, people went crazy. Um, First of all, a lot of people celebrated it by dressing up in costume. There are a lot of Austin lovers out there who dress up in costumes. There were several balls. There were uh, all-day readings where people read the novel out loud and various different um, stars came and read the novel out loud. Um, Libraries had celebrations. Um, The Internet was positively you know, exploding with articles and references and contests and comments. Um, It was kind of insane. Now, why this book in particular? Because Pride and Prejudice is the perfect novel. It has all the elements and it works them to perfection. You begin with two characters of unequal social status. Mr. Darcy is rich. Elizabeth, while not poor, is in a much more difficult situation because she cannot inherit her father's property, which is not nearly as substantial as what Mr. Darcy owns. When he first meets her, she overhears him saying that she's not pretty enough for him. Right? She is tolerable, he says, but not handsome enough to tempt me, and she overhears that. And while she doesn't fully admit it to herself, she hates him for it. She's very hurt by it. And and it affects her self-esteem to some extent. And then what happens over the course of the novel is, first of all, he realizes pretty quickly that she's great and that she's beautiful. And he realizes it because he starts to respect her mind. Now, what is better than that, right? What is a more effective romantic strategy than that? And the fact that he rejected her initially for her looks and then finds her beautiful is one of the great fantasies of all times, right? I remember having that fantasy myself many times when I was growing up. If only he knew what I was really like, then he would love me. And Elizabeth gets that from Darcy. But meanwhile, 
she's still so upset and hurt that she simply hates him and only sees what's bad in him. And part of the fun and part of what's funny in Pride and Prejudice is the reader is aware that he's falling in love with her. And she can't see it or won't see it. Um, and what she, what happens to her in the process of falling in love with Mr. Darcy is she realizes stuff about herself. She realizes information about herself. She realizes her faults. So part of what makes the novel such a great read and so satisfying is, first of all, you open it and, you know, unless you really are willfully blind, you know they're going to get married eventually, right? <laughs> so you sort of have that in the background. But you have this this incredibly satisfying story of watching this heroine who is independent and nonconformist become the desired object of a rich man who, realized, who at first thought he was better than her. But you also have a, a novel of development of a young woman discovering everything she did not know about herself and needs to know about herself in order to, to fall in love. Because it has such a strong presence still today, do you think our generation is able to relate to it because of this story and the passion involved between the characters? Readers love Elizabeth Bennet because she's independent and gutsy and because she'll tell a big, rich man, you know, what he can go do with himself, right? They love that about her. But they also love the way he falls in love with her despite that. And they love watching the relationship unfold over time as it moves to the conclusion they know it will have. And as it moves to the rescue, because in some ways she is Cinderella rescued. And because of its story, it's, it's basically gone viral. It's inspired so many different forms of media. Why, why do you think this is? You know, that's the question that I've got to say at some point. I just don't know. Um, I think once something goes viral, it goes viral. You know, it feeds on itself. Is Pride and Prejudice, in essence, more replicable, more worthy of going viral than another story? I don't know. Partly it's because it, it's a romance with depth, and, and maybe that's key. You know, it, maybe part of the reason it can be viral is because by it's viral, but it's a classic. So people can, on the one hand, get the kind of addictive thrill you get from, from, you know, a popular phenomenon at the same time that they could say, but it's classic. So leading up to the anniversary, you wrote a blog series. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about the topics you discussed? And Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't just leading up to the anniversary. I okay. teach at Fordham. I teach a Jane Austen course at Fordham, and I've taught it many, many times. And, um, I had recently become a Huffington Post blogger, and it occurred to me that I could blog my course, and I could work through the course novel by novel and share with readers what it was we were doing in the course. In each blog, I would take a current event and use the novel to think about um, how we could understand both the event and the novel. It was a kind of... Um, time warp exercise. So I'll give you an example. I talked about gratitude. Austin speaks a lot about gratitude in her novels, but she especially speaks about it in Mansfield Park, where a lower class character is brought into a family and told, endlessly told, that she's supposed to feel grateful. We're used to thinking of gratitude as a noble sentiment, um, but gratitude is really a very 
complicated idea uh, because it's something you feel when someone, in essence, is more powerful than you, right? You feel grateful when somebody has given you something that you can't exactly give back. And there are situations in which when you're told to feel grateful, it can be almost abusive. And so I used a novel, novel to think about gratitude and, and to think about Thanksgiving, which is a complicated holiday, right? There's a lot to be thankful for, but we all know um, that the founding of this country was based on great cruelty and the eradication of a population that was here before. And so by looking at the problem of gratitude in Mansfield Park and the way it's abused, I was able to think about the problem of Thanksgiving. One of the last blogs I did, the last blog I did, was on persuasion. And Jane Austen was dying when she was writing Persuasion. And there's a lot of death in Persuasion. And it was right after the Newton massacres. And so I was able to think about that trauma, and everyone was traumatized, uh, of course. It was very, very traumatic. And I was able to think about that in relation to Jane Austen's meditation on life and death and where to find hope, even as she was herself was dying. It was an enormous challenge. <laughs> and I lost a night of sleep every single week. Um, Coming up with the topics or connecting it? Writing it, it was hard. Writing it, what it about was hard? What about coming up with the topics and the connections with present? Day you know, the connections to me were like always right in my face. I couldn't, I, I, I rarely could escape them. The, first of all, the stuff going on with with the presidential election. I mean, the amount of lying and hypocrisy uh, and self deception that occurs in a presidential election, and I'm not going to pinpoint either of the candidates, but an election is really all about who the heck do you believe, right? How do you know who's telling the truth? Um, there are several different versions of the same story. Everyone's saying that the other person is lying. This kind of thing happens in Jane Austen's novels constantly, particularly happens in Pride and Prejudice. In Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth is hearing different versions of the same story. There are various men who are saying things, and she doesn't know who is saying the true thing, right? Now, if trying to figure out which presidential candidate isn't about trying to figure out which man is saying the true thing, I don't know what is, right? So I was able to use the kind of problems of truth and how to understand information when you're inundated with information, and it can't all be true. How do you know what's true? That is what an election is about, and Austin writes about that all the time. The problem was never coming up with the topics. The problem was staying up all night. I wanted it to be perfect. And of course, it couldn't be perfect. The standard was Jane Austen. So of course, I was doomed to fail on some level. But I, I wanted to write something that did justice to her humor and her intelligence. And in part, I wanted to say something about, you know, the problem of humanities in our moment in time. The humanities are under attack. We all know this. What good is a humanities degree? What good is becoming an English literature major? How are you going to get a career from that? Why should people pay $50,000 for their children to become a literature major? What difference, what, what does reading Jane Austen have to do with, um, you know, why should people care about this upper middle class woman writing in England 200 years ago about 
rich people trying to figure out who to get married to, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that Austin in particular is attacked for, but the humanities in general are attacked for. This is not relevant anymore in our technologically oriented uh, world. This is not relevant anymore in a global economy. This is not the way our sons and daughters are going to earn a living. So one of the things I wanted to do with my blog was to show how reading an Austin novel, which seems like the furthest thing from our life and times and challenges, actually offers tremendous insight into them um, because they're about the problems of being, not just being human, but being human in an unreliable society where you have to forge relationships to each other and where there are many people worthy of love, but where there are many people who aren't. And because they're about class difference, the inequities of um, the distribution of property and wealth, the limitations people have of breaking out of their particular social contexts. Women in all of Austin's novels are remarkably constrained. They are born into a certain position and it's very hard for them to maintain it in any way but getting married. We live in a society where people born into poverty are often doomed to stay there, regardless of everyone's good intentions. Now, this may seem like diametrically different experiences because the women in Austin's novels still go to balls and they don't work and they have servants and they wear fancy dresses. And it's easy to say, oh, that's just irrelevant. That's just, you know, fantasy. That's just illusion. That's just escape. That's just Downton Abbey, right? But if you read Austin with any attention, you realize that she has a lot to say about the challenge and the, and the horror, really, of not being able to escape your social position. And that is a, a, a very important contemporary concern. And so I wanted to, to use the novels not just to think about those issues and not just to say Jane Austen is great, but to defend the whole importance of reading novels and of reading novels in literature classes and of supporting the humanities in college and of recognizing that they are um, as fundamental as anything anybody could study. Would you say her writing is timeless? It has certainly proven so. It has certainly proven so. We will never know but it touches on problems that appear timeless to us, certainly. Self-knowledge, love, and death. And one of the things that's clearly happened in our day is that Austin is now seen as chiclet. She's now seen as something that, that women and girls like. Most men don't like it. And I think, again, it comes down to the way in which she's popularly perceived as rom-com, right? And I think that does her a disservice, and it also interferes or pre prevents so many men and boys from reading novels that they could learn from and love. Now, I don't mean to dismiss Chiclet. It's a good genre. It comforts a lot of people. But I'm troubled by the way in which Austin is seen as a woman's writer. 
She certainly was not for much of her history. Men brought her to the trenches during World War I. There's a story by Rudyard Kipling called The Jainites, in which one of the characters writes the names of characters from Pride and Prejudice on the guns. Because these characters are in some ways as violent and destructive, right, as guns. Austin was a great favorite among very prestigious male scholars in the early 20th century. And when we see her only as writing romance, or only as writing romantic comedy, and fail to recognize that she's really writing about the way people treat and mistreat each other, and the way they fail to understand themselves, we do the novels a tremendous disservice. I would end by saying that Austen's novels are about all of us. And I would encourage anyone who hasn't read them to read the novels before you die, because it will make your life better. They will make your life better and richer. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarchy and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Katie Fisher.